Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about lifestyle creep and define the Coast Fire movement. Or is it Coast Fi? We're going to get into that coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you. Ross, it's great to see you as well. We got some email feedback last week from our show uh, that was very complimentary on the interview that you did with William Green. And I can say, as I listened to it, basically along with our listeners, I loved it. You did a great job. You killed it. Thank you. I think he did a great job. He's a great speaker and a great writer. Um, so if you haven't checked out his book already, I really encourage you to do so. It was an easy read. So hopefully you get as much out of it as I did. Or if you looked at that podcast link and saw 53 minutes and went, ooh, who do these guys think they are asking for 53 minutes of my time? I understand that sentiment. I have also looked at podcasts and had that same emotion where I go, are you kidding me? But it's very much worth it. His thoughts on how you isolate what's important, how you hedge your bets, how you assess your lifestyle. I mean, there was just like a lot of good takeaways, both in the interview and the book. So thank you again to him. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So... Our show today may may wander a little bit, as we occasionally do, but this is really going to stem from a conversation that I have over the weekend where I was introduced to a new financial term, or maybe a derivative of a financial term that, that I was familiar with. I was asked how I felt about the Coast Fire movement. Coast Fire sounds like a great name for a funk band. Uh, see, I heard it and thought that it was what happens in California and like Washington and Oregon every year when there's wildfires. So I thought that was what a coast fire was. Not true, turns out. No, I've. this is the first time I'm hearing the term as well. So uh, enlighten me. What is What is the coast fire movement? So coast fire, as I've read it, it seems like a little bit of a poor nomenclature to me, but it's essentially getting to a point in your savings that your portfolio will grow to your target number. And so so similar to what we talked about a few weeks ago with uh, Nick, I think it's Majuli's blog, on saving early and then you could stop. This is kind of that in a little bit more of a planned form, as far as I can tell, where if you're going to get to a spot that you've saved X number of dollars, the portfolio will then kind of take care of itself and get to your retirement number on its own. What I really like about this is that it's kind of embodying something that we believe is true. Early in your savings career, what is really going to be important is your savings rate, the number of dollars that you put into the portfolio. That matters more than anything. Your returns up front, early in your investing, they might be exciting, they might not, but they matter very little. It's your savings rate that matters. As you build wealth, that teeter-totter starts to flip where your return rate becomes the much bigger impact and your savings play a less material role in each year. So it's not necessarily that they don't matter, but they play less of an impact. And so this is kind of an extension of that saying that once you get to a certain point, the returns may carry you the rest of the way, 
And so you no longer need to worry about the saving, hence the coast. So you're going to coast to your retirement age. At its core, that makes sense to me. If you can build up a big enough portfolio that it's going to grow and compound rapidly to get you to where you need to be fast enough, I get it. I think that's motivating and inspiring and something that you can control to an extent. If I get X dollars into this account fast enough, I can just let it do the heavy lifting for me. Now, I think a little bit, it's a it's misnamed because FIRE, the acronym, stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And as I'm reading this, the whole point is really stop saving early and coast until a normal retirement age, right? 60, 65, whatever we want to call that. That doesn't feel like retire early to me. So if we're going to call that FIRE, I think they've kind of misnamed it, but maybe that they're playing on kind of the SEO and the buzz of just like how many times people type fire into Google and they're hoping that they're going to get more views as a result of that. Yeah, I think we're going to have to call it the Coast Fi movement because we're just gunning for financial independence here. There's no retire early component. Uh, we can leave that at the door. Agreed. We've renamed it. it it's been settled. Coast Fi. All right. So at its core, I agree that you could probably make the math work on this, right? I don't think that it's that hard to do from a sense if you've saved early and often and consistently that you could kind of shut the spigot off and coast in to the number that you want. But the immediate thing that came to mind for me was lifestyle creep. Now, just as an example, I'm going to use this as no taxes. Let's just ignore all of the outside factors. But if you've been earning $100,000 and you've been saving 15,000 of those dollars, that means you're spending 85. So if you get to the number where you think, okay, my number might be 3 million bucks for retirement, right? That's what I'm hoping to hit. And my portfolio, if I stop working now, might achieve that $3 million by the time I hit 60. Again, I'm just throwing hypothetical numbers out. When you stop saving, we have to account for where that money goes. If you start spending the extra 15 grand and you just kind of absorb that into your budget, that's lifestyle creep. And that's really what we wanted to talk about today is how does lifestyle creep happen? What do you need to be looking for? Because that's the worry. If you go from spending 85000 a year to 100000 a year, not only is that interesting to like watch currently, but it probably moves that retirement number. Your number may not be $3 million anymore. If you did the math and said, I need $3 bucks to recreate $85,000 a year, great. If you start spending $100,000, you've just elevated the number. You have to redo the math. So maybe you can't coast from that point if you're going to spend the extra. And if you're making a plan like this, odds are it's for decades in the future if you're planning properly. And your highest earning years are most likely going to be towards the tail end of that period. So there is a big opportunity for lifestyle creep because your wages are probably going to increase year after year after year. And if you just stop saving, where is that money going to go to? And can you just reset to the lifestyle you had when you were 20 something and started putting this plan in motion? Now, I'll tell you where I think it does make sense. If you're planning a career downshift, if you want to move into a role that is maybe less stress, not as hectic, Maybe you're not supervising people. You want to go back to being a technician and you've been a manager, right? Whatever that is, we hear a lot of those stories of people going, I want to keep working, but not like this. Then this makes all the sense in the world because what you can do is you've essentially bought yourself permission to downshift and say, I don't need to earn the high income. 
if I can cover my living expenses at a lower rate without all the savings and without all the input into the portfolio, well, then that is a totally different equation and you're kind of avoiding the lifestyle creep. Right. You're almost putting in place a structure that prevents you from being able to do that. You're limiting your spend to where you think it's going to be in the future. So there's no adjustment period, assuming that you have undergone a creep. You're already spending the amount that you figure you're going to be down the road. Uh, so don't need to change your lifestyle, change you know the quality of things you're doing every day. So lifestyle creep is kind of a funny concept. And I think that it's it's one of the reasons that we talk a lot in our business in percentages, because, you know, even any example we give on this show, somebody's going to listen to the example and go, are you kidding me? Because it doesn't matter. Like, no matter what number we use, if we use a small income number, people are going to be like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I make a lot of money. If I use a big income number, people might go, well, that doesn't help me because I don't make anywhere near that. But percentages matter and they stay pretty consistent. And we're generally thinking for somebody to retire at a normal age, 15 to 20% is ideal. Now, if you're not saving that percentage, that's okay. You might be getting there, but somewhere in that 15 to 20% annually, and we can include matching, right? So if your employer is doing some matching, if you're getting a 3% match and you're saving 12%, something along those lines, that's going to get you there for the average person, I think at least in the math that I've done and the folks that I've looked at historically. If we're kind of doing a 5, 6, 7% savings rate, it's going to be snug. It's going to be tough to make all of that work, which is why I always get a little bit frustrated when people only increase their 401k to like where they get the employer match and then they stop and maybe aren't doing anything beyond that. But that's beyond kind of the scope of our discussion today. So if you can get to 15 to 20% for most people, that's good. The reason I bring that up is as your income rises, the target should be to keep that percentage accurate, right? If you've been kind of saving a specific dollar amount, if you put in 500 bucks a month into your savings account, or if you put in X number of dollars into your 401k and it's marked to the dollars, not to the percentage, you're at risk of lifestyle creep as your income starts to change. Uh, and that's kind of one of the first things that I would point out to folks is that really matters. Trying to keep that savings rate consistent is critical. And the next side of that is if you're not at that 15 to 20% yet and you get a raise, don't just defaultly assume, is defaultly a word? I'm not sure. It is now. Well, it is now. I like it. Don't defaultly assume that you are fine because your percentage of savings is going to you know, be the same and you're going to save more dollars because you got the raise, you should increase the amount that you're saving uh, to capture more of that raise going into savings as opposed to just having that flow through and learning to spend that money. So if you're saving 10%, don't just have that 10% of the raise go back into your 401k. You should increase your percentage because it's going to be the, the easiest time to do that versus getting used to having a bigger paycheck and then finding ways to spend it instead of save it. Absolutely. I think that's one of my favorite tips for people. If they're not at the savings rate they want to be at yet, particularly when you've got changes in income, try and capture it before it actually hits your paycheck. Like literally from the moment you get the raise, go in to your 401k website and go from six to 7% or seven to eight, right? As far as you think you can comfortably go until you get to that 15% overall, 
Uh, or again, if you're using other buckets, like that's fine. I'm not saying it's all 401k and that's the only way to do this. But yeah, I think that's really important advice, Dan. Thanks. You're quite welcome. So what does lifestyle creep really look like? You know, I, I kind of looked at an old story that I just remember being really silly uh, about Johnny Depp. And I think this is back in like 2016. And at one point, it was reported that he was spending $30,000 a month on wine. That's a big number, right? And you look at that, and for us mere mortals, we could look at that and go, well, I'm never going to do that. That's crazy, right? That's just somebody blowing his money. Now, he claimed that some of that was an investment, so maybe he thought he was going to sell her the wine and then like resell it later, which... Okay, if you can do that effectively, good for you. I don't I don't know about you, but Facebook has been blowing up my feed with ads about how great an investment wine has been. So maybe he's not crazy. Right. Yeah. They, anything, art, wine, like, yeah, there's lots of stuff that people think you can invest in. And I think that that's a symptom of everybody looking for anything that's non-correlated uh, and just being scared of equity prices. But, you know, that that's just me. Right. But most of us, lifestyle creep doesn't look like that. Nobody's going to suddenly go from buying $6 wine every week to 30000 a month in wine purchases. It tends to happen much more slowly and in ways that I think are so difficult to even see. And I just had an example of this personally. So when the pandemic started, I started ordering quite a bit more on like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub. I just got into the delivery thing. I didn't have restaurants that I could walk to like I did when we were working in an office. And that convenience of, hey, somebody will bring me this food became awfully convenient. And admittedly, that's been something I do more than I probably should. So I recently started doing the math on that on kind of number one, am I getting any sort of a deal? You know, I get like DoorDash, Dash Pass for participating because I've got a Chase Sapphire card, right? I've got like all of these like deal programs and I'm trying to figure out, is any of this worth it? So number one, and this isn't a knock on DoorDash, but uh, one of the ways that they are supplementing their business model is that they change their pricing versus the restaurant. And I know that because I've got the Jersey Mike's app where they charge me $2.99 to deliver a sandwich and the menu prices are normal like they are in the store. And on DoorDash, where I've got Dash Pass, I was paying like a dollar or two more per item. And then they were like, yeah, but delivery's free, which like, okay, that's ridiculous. If you order two items, you've already paid the same delivery charge. If you're ordering more than that, now you're in trouble. But anyway, that frustrated me. But as I'm thinking about it, $2.99 for delivery plus tipping the driver, let's call it another five bucks. So every time I do this, I'm probably costing myself an extra $8, not even from just the restaurant eating itself, which I realize if you're cooking at home, you're doing a better job than I am. $8 doesn't sound like a ton until you start to extrapolate that into what it really means. $8, if you do it every day, you're talking about 40 bucks a week. Over 50 weeks a year, that's two thousand dollars just in delivery fees not even on the food just because i'm too lazy to get off my butt and go pick up a sandwich because i was kind of in that mode early on that upset me kind of right like i'm not like a strong budgeter we've talked about that on this show but that felt ridiculous that's crazy and i feel like having been in a situation where that's been reality a lot of people have been ordering food to their house have been ordering groceries for delivery 
it's going to be very tempting and easy to continue doing that into the future. And just to see the impact that that can have is really meaningful. Uh, you know, $2,000 a year into savings can grow to be a big part of your retirement savings in total. Yeah. I mean, I hate all the articles that are like, all you have to do is give up your latte and you're going to be a millionaire, right? Those articles generally frustrate me. But I do believe in, like, I guess what I have trouble with is forward-looking budgeting. I I struggle to look at the next month and go, what am I going to spend my money on? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what Ross on Tuesday wants. I have no idea. That person, it might be a stranger to me. Now, I can be directionally accurate on what I might want or what I might want to do. But I I just simply, that level of planning frustrates me. I want to have room for spontaneity. But I do believe in looking at what you have been spending money on and then reassessing, does that actually align with your values? I think in this case, I'm saying no, and I'm trying to introduce a behavioral change as a result of it. So that's been my lifestyle creep that I've been dealing with. Yeah, eat the sandwich, just go pick it up. I went through a similar scenario with, we we had a pizza last night, and earlier we had been ordering it for delivery through DoorDash or something. And went through the same exercise. What does the pizza cost at the place? What does it cost on the app? Delivery tip and all that stuff. So I decided I was going to start going to pick it up whenever we whenever we ordered a pizza. And not only was it all those things that I could see plainly in front of me, but when I go, it's like half price pizza Mondays, which doesn't ever flow through to the apps. So you know, there's even a greater savings beyond what I thought it was by just getting off my butt and and driving out there. Yeah, I it, I mean, that just seems like a really silly place to have this like big leak in your budget. Well, like there's going to be days still where I'm just too busy that I can't leave. I, I think that I've got to move away, at least personally, from that being my default, right? I've, I've got to just build that time in and go like, okay, it's just not worth it to add $2,000 a year of cost to be this lazy. I'll tell you what's been getting me is how well social media knows me and my habits because it is showing me everything in the world I want to buy at all times. And uh, since you and I last spoke, Ross, I'm one guitar richer, because it put it in front of me and said, look at this guy. He's getting rid of this guitar. You'd probably like this guitar, wouldn't you? They were right. They were certainly right. And within 24 hours, it was in my office. I mean, we're not going to unpack all of this today either, but I do think that there's an interesting debate to be had in like the targeted ads versus not. And I've generally been like a proponent, actually, of targeted ads. And I realize that's not a popular take. I think a lot of people are worried about privacy and why do these companies know so much about me? But I figure if I'm going to look at ads, I might as well look at the ads I want to see. You might as well show me t-shirts that I think are funny. You might as well show me things that like I might want to buy. And, and I think about that from both lenses. One, as a small business owner, I'm like, man, our challenge as small business owners in almost every business is trying to find the people that need this thing, right? Our, our challenge is podcast hosts. How do we find an audience that would like our show and that this is going to be helpful for? Well, you out there can share this with your friends and family. We always appreciate if you do that. If there's other folks that you think might enjoy it, that's great. But the other way is targeted ads. Finding people specifically so that you're not just shotgun blasting the world with, hey, listen to this podcast, but finding people that might actually be interested and find our show relevant. That's super hard to do. And social media has made it incredibly powerful and incredibly easy to do that. On the other hand, you're going, well, maybe I'm spending more because they're showing me all this crap that I actually want. And it's affecting my budget, which I think is the take you're having, Dan. 
It certainly is. And I think for what it's worth that that is on me <laughs> to fix that. Uh, I still appreciate seeing all that stuff, uh, but I don't buy a new guitar every day. That's that's good, right? Yeah. I mean, it's at least not Johnny Depp level of wine buying for you on guitars. Not yet, but I'm going to coast to that point at one one day in my life to uh, where where my portfolio can sustain my guitar buying habits without having to add to it. So I think our point here is really that lifestyle creep is really easy to fall into. And it often comes in these like hidden little places. It's not that you're going to go from buying, you know, two buck Chuck at Trader Joe's or whatever, four buck Chuck, whatever it is these days in terms of your wine buying and you're suddenly going to become Johnny Depp. But it's very easy when you go from being like a college age kid to an adult and having a real income that you go, hey, a six to ten dollar bottle as an occasional wine purchase is no longer out of reach. I'm going to treat myself to that. And then maybe that turns into a $20 or $25 bottle for special occasions, right? It's very, very easy to make those like incremental shifts where it's not ever that you're going to just like quadruple your spend in like one day, but it's those little decisions over and over again. And while we're not hardcore, you know, austerity first sort of budgeters, I do very much believe in, are you putting your money in the places that you value it most? If anyone out there is part of the Coastfy movement, we'd love to hear from you. I've never heard about it until Ross introduced it to me. Uh, let us know what you've been doing and when you started. You can email us at checkyourbalancesoutlook.com. Leave us a great rating on the, on the apps if you enjoy the show. And certainly, as Ross said, share with your friends. We look forward to catching up with you next week. Thanks for joining us.